Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to be digging into a juicy little topic because Dylan asked me what the dream episode of the podcast would be for me. And so... It was on diet culture. Yes. Particularly the history and the impact of it. Yes. I'm so excited. Yeah. So this is going to be one of a two-parter. Yeah. It's um, a long one. It's a very research-heavy one in terms of history and then also some science. The second episode is going to be more on the impact. Today is going to be more on the history of it. Yeah. So like where diet culture came from, how it started and how it got so pervasive. Mm-hmm. But first, we want to dig into a few things. So if you really want to support the show, which we always love and appreciate, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Spotify because that is so helpful and we always appreciate it. Secondly, if you need some help with your training or your nutrition or your habits and lifestyle and you want somebody to help you figure it all out, we're here. We would love to help you depending on whether we're the right fit. So if you're interested please check out the link in the description and should you be missing us and you're wanting some more fitness content delivered directly to your inbox with none of the frills everybody wants more emails everybody wants more emails and you know what we're fun so like (laughs) (laughs) we're really fun our emails are great dylan usually does a research review or movement of the week he stays more on the fitness and the research side while i come in every other week and do a little bit of the mindset stuff so if you're interested in that please hit the link below to sign up for our newsletter we promise we won't spam you yeah we don't spam and now (laughs) bluntly we don't spam love that And now, seeing as this episode is going to be a little bit lengthy, we're going to do a very quick edition of Roses and Thorns. Yeah, we're going to keep it cash here and roll through this one. A hundred percent. So, handing it straight off to you. So... (laughs) you guys will be familiar with from my last thorn where my hamstring was bothering me. I hate this. From flag football. Yeah, I tore it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm enraged by this. I knew it. I had a bad feeling. There was something in the air that day. He did not listen to his body at all. And he went anyway. I gaslight myself. I ignore my intuition all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't trust myself. I should have. I sprinted and I just heard the pop pop. And yeah, it's torn. Oh, it was two pops. Oh yeah, it was like a little crackle. Gross. It sucked. So that sucks. But the rose is, I've become more aware of pain research, of the psychosocial model of pain, to the point that I don't catastrophize it as much as I probably would have in the past, especially with something like a hamstring, because the adage would be, once it starts, it's just going to be a problem forever. Then you get kind of trapped in the loop of feeling like an injury is a part of you, Mm -hmm. as opposed to something you're just going to overcome over time and have to adapt with. So I have, my mindset's been pretty good even though I've been really annoyed with it and it sucked to walk and etc cetera, etc cetera. but I'll be back not catastrophizing minor setback for a major comeback yeah and it's been really fun because he's felt really sorry for himself ever since oh. he made the poor choice no, to I go haven't. play when you he should have so, listened to his body you were so mad at me I was enraged I called her she was like a mom yeah Dylan, get home now <laughs> <laughs> get home now yeah, that was, yeah that, that's I was it. enraged yeah 
but you know, listen to your body is the biggest moral of this story. It knows a few things. A few. Your genes are much older than you. They know more things than you probably. They're wiser than <laughs> we are. My quick rose and my quick thorn are also related to one another, which we love. My rose is that I mentioned prior, I have not been dialed in in my training and I'm back. I'm on a program. Coach Dilly took care of me in a big way. He's torturing me. It's fun. I love it. But my thorn is that I also hate it. I hate it a lot. I'm making her do things she would have never done. Yeah. And it's it's not even that. It's the energy mm-hmm. pull, honestly. Like, it's just I'm still not back in the way that I normally am where training is just a given. Yeah. Like, I'm still really pushing myself to show up. And it sucks. But taking it with grace and trying to just be patient with myself one day at a time chipping away trying to like rebuild the habit and decrease the friction that I feel I show up to my sessions and I'm like oh like oh it's gonna be so laborious and long and exhausting so I'm just not used to pushing myself anymore in any meaningful way true but with each session it gets a little easier squats so, like money the other day they were good they're bouncy yeah we love that so Let's dig deep, baby. If you've ever wondered how we got here, this is the episode for you. Because I've wondered for so long the genesis of diet culture, how we got to a society full of people who are always worried about being smaller. I don't know about you folks, but I've met so many people and I've been that person too who was just on a diet seemingly forever. Oh my God. It's pretty normal. Like, And unless you take a step back and critically think about what the messaging is the fact that some folks will be on a diet for 40 years Mm -hmm. just like we talked about you sam and your mom like as long as you've known her she's been on a diet and that's not atypical for a lot of women in our society and what gets talked about not enough it's not atypical for a lot of men in our society for kind of everyone across the gender spectrum the drive for thinness the high levels of body dissatisfaction are just seemingly the norm Mm -hmm. and eating behaviors tend to just correlate negatively with that where there's a lot of unhealthy eating behaviors obsession disordered patterns, full-on eating disorders. The the gamut is long. A hundred percent. And it's so commonplace. It is so terribly, horribly common. Mm -hmm. And the thing that kind of scared me that came from all of this was learning not only of its pervasiveness, but how social media and, you know, COVID and everything that's gone on the past few years has not only increased the prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders, but that they're also turning towards even younger and younger kids. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping this episode will be enlightening yeah. in some weird way. I think it's important for us to all pull ourselves back for a second and yeah. question the systems under which we've been told life is going on as usual. Like this yeah. is normal, but this is a systemic issue yeah. on every level. For sure. I think I might have mentioned it the one time, but it's like that. There's a meme and it's two fish in the water and they're talking mm-hmm. to each other and one of the fish goes, how's the water today? Yeah. And the other fish goes, what water? Yes. You can be so entrenched in something that you're not even realize that it's around you. And I think yeah. diet culture has had that type of systemic impact on a lot of folks' lives. I was on a diet from age 13 to 26. Yeah. And the first year I was actively not on a diet was mm-hmm. like two years ago. Wow. And I was like, holy shit. That's, I just kind of maintained for a year. Actually, your boy got thick and it was nice. Got strong <laughs> (laughs) as hell, ate a lot of food. It was nice. But I was on a diet and didn't realize I was on a diet. 
And that doesn't mean I was lean. I was gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, yeah. basically weight cycling for 13 years. And I think that's more common than most people realize. And I think that the impact of it, sure, like there are negative consequences when it comes to your overall health, surely, mm-hmm. if you spiral down the disordered eating spectrum. However, the impact that it has on us psychologically is honestly kind of frightening. Yeah. And again, pervasive. Yeah, very pervasive big way so i guess let's take it all the way back the first time the word diet appears in history so it seems is in ancient greece actually and it came from the word dieta it was supposed to encompass a lifestyle of better food better drink and exercise and it was this huge component of life in greek culture ancient greek culture and one thing that we can see if we look back at some of the artifacts from that time the art the sculptures things like that or if we look at the goddess aphrodite women's bodies were not celebrated from like this very teeny tiny narrow kind of space women were celebrated for more of that like curvaceous body type way back when yeah and then it slowly begins to change i think one thing that can get overlooked is that diet fads are not new yeah they're very old and i think most people if you were to ask like hey when do you think the first diet fad was <laughs> probably think in the, in the 20th century so in yeah. the 1900s at some point but interestingly enough the first noted one and there could have been one before but if it's written history it tends to be remembered a little bit better was 1588 and it was called the art of living long that was written by an italian man named luigi Corna- cornaro sorry to my fellow italian friends i probably messed that up Coronaro. there we go so he wrote a diet and published a, a diet book called the art of living long and that was back in the 16th century so that was a long time ago Yo, it was also yeah. a man so i bring that up because there's always been this pervasive myth that body image disorders and eating disorders and just like fad dieting is kind of in the realm of only affecting women or people yeah. who identify as women so that's just not really true and one of the first known diet books was actually written by a man who lost a lot of weight and he limited himself to 12 ounces of food and to 14 ounces of wine per day. Now, I was kind of tinkering around on my macro factor app with this. If you were to eat just chicken thigh, which is a decently, it's not a super low calorie food and it's given to give you a lot of nutrients, this would equate to about a thousand calories per day. He lost a significant amount of weight doing this. I think he did this for almost the rest of his life. And this is an example of extreme dieting. And this goes all the way back to 1588. And the first notable diet icon, Sammy, who would you think the first notable diet icon would be? A famous woman of some kind. I don't know. Like a model in like the yeah. 1900s. Yeah. It was a man in 1788 yeah. named Lord Byron in London, England. And this is the first diet icon we're aware of. What a guy. So he was a poet. He was considered like an icon. He was gorgeous in the eyes of the folks over there. Um, <laughs> 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 I mean, beauty changes. Beauty standards are dynamic. So He's he, not my type, but, yeah. you know, some people appreciate his cute. overall look. <laughs> <laughs> he was known to follow an, an incredibly restrictive diet. There were some accounts saying that for a period of time, for his breakfast would just be one thin slice of bread with some tea, no milk or sugar, no lunch, and then a vegetable dinner with wine. One thing he also did was that he created the notable vinegar diet. He would just soak potatoes in vinegar. He would drink water with vinegar. And there is some adjacency to the apple cider vinegar diet that's become more popular now, which espouses unique benefits from that disgusting drink. It doesn't. So <laughs> <laughs> to be blunt. Yeah. So he created the vinegar diet. He allegedly went from 193 pounds in 1806 to 125 pounds in 1811, which is like 
a massive amount of weight loss, way too much. He was essentially starving himself. Yeah. And he also showed some other signs of like really dangerous eating behaviors, which now in the DSM-5 would be like a clear off the charts eating disorder. He was known to wear very heavy and baggy clothes that would make him sweat profusely. And he would use laxatives and would purge after allowing himself to binge. So we got a lot of disordered eating habits from men as early as the 1700s. And another thing that was interesting was that in the 18, 1860s, there was a man named William Banting who mm-hmm. kind of got obsessed with this low carb diet. I think this is one of the first instances of like a really restrictive low carb diet coming into play. And he lost a lot of weight, essentially getting rid of all starch and all sugar. And his diet became so popular that later in the 1920s, I believe it was, the term I am Banting became synonymous yeah. with I am dieting. So this just is evidence of how this affects everyone. It affects women, men, everyone on the gender spectrum. And it's been around probably longer than most of us would think. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of takes us to the 1890s, which is when the Gibson girl was introduced into the mainstream. So she was featured in magazines. She was this tall, beautiful, slim-waisted, but curvy woman. And she was posed next to sayings like the ideal body. She was always drawn doing something physically active. And she had this like air of confidence to her. Women literally wanted to become the Gibson girl. Clothing lines were designed after her. There were even like lines of bedding, things like that, that were modeled after this woman and her ideal life, I suppose. And the best part of the Gibson girl that everybody was aspiring to become is that she literally was not even a real human being. She was just a drawing by a man named Charles Gibson who wanted to make drawings of the ideal woman. Yeah. (laughs) That's absurd. Wait, men creating body ideals for women? That's that's unheard of. That's so strange. Who knew? Wow. So she starts to fade out of popularity in 1914, kind of around the start of World War One. And because of World War One, a lot of men went off to war, right? So there was this huge void in the workforce and women enthusiastically joined, craving a sense of independence. But then once the men returned home, there was kind of this push back towards the old patriarchal way of life. So this kind of coincides with a few things happening. Diet books become popular and a really big one was by Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters. She publishes this book in 1918 and it's called Diet and Health with the Keys to Calories. So the key to cal- the with the Key calories. to Calories. Yeah, yeah. This is actually the genesis of the idea of food being fuel because Dr. Lulu said that you had to think about your body as a car engine and food as fuel in saying that if you eat too much, it would slow down the whole system. She also started the cottage cheese diet and she recommended budgeting calorie intake by consuming no more for the average woman, 1200 calories a day. Yeah. And I love that that's where that number first starts to Mm. The number is pervasive. Pervasive. Even today, 1,200 calories. Dr. Lulu's book actually sold millions of copies. It was incredibly popular. And again, that also coincides with the introduction of the bathroom scale. So now people didn't have to wait to go to their doctor's office one time a year for their physical to find out whether or not they had to deal with an issue because God knows it's always an issue. The age old tradition of your doctor telling you you need to lose weight. Absolutely. 
Exactly. Still goes on today. Not much practical comes out of it. It's just you're fat, lose weight. Yeah. But with the introduction of the bathroom scale, people could now weigh themselves in their own homes. Yeah. It became seen as a sense of personal responsibility. Yeah. That the onus is now on you. So it became a colloquial understanding on some level that, and I quote, body fat was a result of poor willpower. That was yeah. a trope that was spread in magazines and newspapers and the like. That stigmatization of weight gain and obesity is so old. I know. And still unfortunately it's pervasive. Un- it's unbelievable. This also happens to coincide with the passage of the 19th Amendment. So when President Woodrow gave women the right to vote, there was like this big push for independence, right? Yeah. Now we're setting the scene. We're entering the 1920s with that newfound sense of independence with bathroom scales and armed with diet books, women feel like they can take a sense of control back when it comes to their bodies. So this actually intersects with the flapper era. If you've ever seen flapper dresses, they're kind of like a baggier, shapeless kind of vibe. It's supposed to sort of like hang off your body very loosely. And the style doesn't really go very well with being curvy because we don't want those like curve hugging clothes anymore. We want that I'm so small and I'm swimming in my outfit energy. Yeah. Great. Women really wanted to be very thin to fit into that style, which then too intersects with Coco Chanel, our favorite. A noted Nazi collaborator. Can't even begin with that one. (laughs) But when she popped onto the scene, she introduced the silhouette, the very famous silhouette, which denotes a woman with a disproportionately tiny waist. That too became aspirational for women to become smaller and smaller. So during this time, of course, fad diets were all the rage. Women were on diet pills. They were chewing gum so that they didn't have to eat. They were doing laxatives, enemas, the cigarette diet. It became popular. Oh, yeah. The big Siggy company at the time was Lucky Strike, and they actually had ads where there were these skinny, you know, sexy looking women next to a pack of their cigarettes, basically, with the quote, reach for Lucky instead of a sweet. Yeah. It was like a, it was used as like an appetite curtailing. Yes. Almost like a supplement, right? Yes. Yeah. Which obviously propels eating disorder rates. Of course. So eating disorders were definitely at a high at this time. And then the Great Depression hit, which changes the body type in vogue, of course, because now we're associating being thin with being poor. So ultra thin bodies like in the flapper era are no longer seen as being the ideal. Well, it's interesting, like classism seems to always involve itself with body images because you were mentioning like back in the day, like being larger meant you were probably wealthy. A hundred percent. Especially for like kings, right? Yeah. Um, and quote unquote peasants were like very like yes. emaciated. And now in this era, like this seems to always kind of rear its ugly head. Yeah. So interestingly enough, during the 30s, the Gibson girl comes back into popularity. She <laughs> circles back because she had a little bit more curve to her than the more waif-like thin variation of a body type that we saw in the 20s. I got a question. Yeah. When the drive for thinness or kind of like the ideal thinness of the beauty images teeter on a spectrum, 
serum, mm -hmm. the thin waist is consistent? Yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. kind of like they're just picking and choosing like proportions from hip to waist. Yes. But yes. having a tiny flat waist is consistent across the board? Yes. Yeah. That, that, that checks out. Yes. It's that like, even checks out today. I know. It's yeah. always the narrow waist and the hip to breast ratio is yeah. what changes mm -hmm. in a big way. Okay. So then the diet industry just kind of continues to grow in the 40s and the 50s. There's nothing too exciting there. But in the 1960s, the ideal body changes again back to a skinny body type. And this time, women are pissed. Women are sick and tired of trying to whittle their way down into this teeny tiny size. And many women of color were starting to finally push back against the beauty standards predicated on the white Eurocentric variation of beauty. That's been here the whole time Sam's been talking yes, to. Yes, absolutely. So now we're in the 1960s and hinging off of the civil rights movement was actually the Black is Beautiful movement. And these folks joined forces with the Black Power movement and began boycotting institutions that didn't acknowledge beauty beyond white skin. Yeah. That's so good. This segues into something I want to talk about and it's, it's a heavy topic, but it's one that if we weren't to discuss, we would be leaving out a huge part of history and for lack of a better term, we would straight up be whitewashing history. There has always been in the West, in the colonial era, the imperialistic era, this racial history of tying thinness with whiteness and beauty. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I think is very like important whenever you're kind of talking about beauty standards or even when you're talking about kind of anything that's comparative in nature or hierarchical when it comes to comparison like beauty for example it's beautiful compared to what yes right beauty isn't in a vacuum any kind of ideal isn't in a vacuum it has to have a comparator model and with british imperialism and colonialism in the west christopher columbus piece of shit uh <laughs> not a good guy regardless with colonialism and imperialism here systems were brought with that invasion and that was a few. It was capitalism, mm -hmm. which would have been newer to the Americas. There were mostly just indigenous people at the time who would travel in bands. And then there was white supremacy, patriarchy, mm. and then just imperialism in general, which is kind of like taking your empire's values and just kind of forcing it onto the new era. So whether it would be the Spanish, the Dutch, the English, they would force whatever land they colonized to then adopt their systems mm -hmm. and then put them at the lower end of the caste or whatever the social hierarchy was. In the West, and particularly America and Canada, which we kind of just kind of like backpack off of them in a lot of ways. White supremacy was the kind of the model in which beauty was framed. The other was often black folks, mm -hmm. right? Especially enslaved black folks that were brought here via the transatlantic slave trade and that were used as basically machines and dehumanized to build the wealth of the white Christian landowners that were then here in America. When it comes to this, you got beauty that is tied in with whiteness and also thinness, especially for women. So when it comes to the beauty for mm -hmm. white people, you'd have thin, you'd have white, you'd have blonde, blonde and straight hair. Hair is a really big one. Still contentious to this day, of course. And blue eyes would be very common too. Like there's some like Aryan kind of shit there. And the <laughs> this would be juxtaposed to what's not beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that would be black and brown skin. Mm -hmm. That would be Afro textured hair. That'd be maybe having a larger body or a more curvy body. Mm -hmm. You would have this comparator model. And oh, the difference in features. Difference in features as well. Oh right? my God. This is a thing that is still pervasive within our society, right? And people think that just because there are laws that are passed, that there isn't a trickle down effect of values and beauty standards that 
that don't transcend the passing of a law, right? Even though slavery was outlawed and et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't mean that the lingering effects of white supremacy do not exist today. And they seem to really rear their ugly head around beauty standards. One thing that was also interesting was in that colonial era and in that enslavement era, Europeans were still looking for distinctions between them and the folks they enslaved and colonized. Apparently highlighting body size was one way that they could show superiority for quote unquote self-control. One of the reasons for this too was because of racial mixing, and this was often non-consensual racial mixing, mm -hmm. i.e. raping of enslaved women, this would create a lot of racial mixing, which would kind of create a spectrum of skin colors more so than yes. the dichotomy of black and white. And one thing that they would use to show superiority was having a thin body, having quote unquote more self-control, and that would show them as being superior because there was that whole eugenics era where they were just like, okay, black people are not humans, we are the superior race. So this kind of ties in with like, look how ugly they are, look how out of control they are, look mm -hmm. how beautiful we are, and look how superior and thin we are. See how much more control that Polished we and refined. Exactly. And then when I mentioned that there was also patriarchy that was brought with colonialism, that mm -hmm. was kind of the social hierarchy of, you know, men being the leaders and they're running everything and having all the privileges and women being submissive to that. And our gender roles were defined by that, but so were our beauty standards. Yes. And part of that is like feminine beauty in particular was shaped by this patriarchal construct of what it meant to be feminine. A couple key notes of that were being small, being submissive, taking up little space. And a big part of this like thinness adjacency mm -hmm. to that is that being fat is not congruent with any of that idea. No. And in a, in a book that I'm going to reference um, by Bell Hooks, I Ain't a Woman, is what it's called. It's one of her like great books on black women and feminism and like the history of slavery, the history of like subjugation of black women in the Americas and in America particularly. They talk about partially in this, there was this pervasive myth of black women being matriarchal and emasculating black men and being loud and fat. And basically this all feeds into this idea mm -hmm. of look how not beautiful they are, look how better our women are than their women, etc. So this kind of really all ties in. And to not talk about this is to leave out a massive part of what informs beauty. Because yes. beauty is not just in a vacuum. It is going to be shaped by history. And our history here is quite ugly. And it is shaped by a lot of these things of patriarchy, of white supremacy. So also in that book by Bell, she mentions there was an uncited history of enslaved women in America particularly was that they were in the house taking care of the slave master's kids, the wife, et cetera, doing the housework, but they were also in the fields. They were doing heavy labor with the men. Mm -hmm. And part of this was used as the patriarchal men would be like, look at these black women. They wouldn't even think that they were women because they're like, look at them out in the fields doing manual labor with the men. This is just evidence that they're not womanly, that they're not feminine. And they would juxtapose that to white women. Again, that would be another juxtaposition of here are our white women on this pedestal of beauty and femininity. And then here are black women on the exact opposite. Yeah. And this just continues to feed the ideal white, thin beauty standards that have been passed down. Well, then if you think about white women in that scenario, it's look at them their hands aren't dirty they're not rugged they're dainty they're fragile they're feminine they're in the kitchen and then look at those black women in the fields yeah oh they're rugged no yeah as if that's like a natural thing you made them exactly right? oh my god and then you made the white women go to the kitchen they yeah. didn't want that like and nobody consented to this whole thing they were shoved into it exactly this also mostly is going to affect when I, we say white women it's more like wealthy white women yeah if you were 
were a poor white woman, like you still were benefiting a ton from these systems compared to like yes. black people and black women. But or a woman of color. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't have been upheld as this holy kind of like perfect white woman because yeah. you probably had to do labor in your own home too. Yeah. Where these very privileged and wealthy white families that could afford to outsource all of their labor, their wives wouldn't have to do as much housework. Yeah. They could keep this kind of like perfect kind of image up to appease the patriarchal ideal of feminine beauty. You could just be blonde hair, blue eyed and batting your little eyelashes all day. Exactly. And that Love was like that. the ideal. I think this is a good part to discuss too, because although it's less important now because we have social media and there's way more diversity in how we can mm -hmm. access like beauty and images, etc. That wasn't always the case. Like this is a new thing to have non gate kept areas of beauty because yes. you can just go on social media and post before it was gate kept by magazine companies, ad companies, etc. Interestingly, the Miss America beauty pageant kind of really highlights this because it really was like Miss America. This is the most beautiful woman in America. This is the face of beauty here. It's rule seven of the Miss America beauty pageant, which I think was abandoned in like 1970 or 1960. I don't know when it was. It was too late is exactly what yeah. I'm going to say. Maybe it was in the, it was 1940. But originally this rule stated that the Miss America pageant contestants had to all be quote unquote healthy and of the white race. So to even enter this pageant, you had to be healthy and white. Now there's some coded language there. The yeah, 100%. Non, the non-coded language is just straight up racism and white supremacy. Yes. If you're not white, you're not even considered beautiful enough to enter this pageant. But that word healthy is mm -hmm. very, very charged. And yeah. it means a lot of things. Because again, there's intersectionality here. White women, not all white women are on the same kind of social hierarchy historically. No. So this was racist as hell to all women of color. But it was also ableist and fat phobic. Because basically all women in larger bodies, regardless of race and class, would mm -hmm. be out, right? You could be you could be a white, rich, able-bodied woman. Blonde hair, and blue eyed like, and all. You're out because you're mm -hmm. fat. Because being fat, not healthy. And then if you had any disability. It could be a physical disability. It could be a mental disability. You had to be healthy, right? But if you were missing a foot or you couldn't walk right, but you met every other beauty standard, that disability makes you inherently not beautiful. So there's mm -hmm. ableism, there's fat phobia, and there's racism all mixed into the ideals. And the Miss America beauty pageant really highlights that. And then that was eventually changed. And even though the rule was changed, there wasn't even a black woman contestant in the Miss America finals until 1970, which means they didn't win their state until that age, yeah, until that year. And to quote one of my favorite comedians, Shane Gillis, we had already been to the fucking moon. Honestly. We sent someone to the moon before we could even recognize that a black woman could represent the beauty standards here in the U.S. And I know we're in Canada, but we have a very enmeshed culture. Completely. And Canadians like to act like we've never had this stuff, but we have. There's a very rich history of racism and white supremacy and ableism and all of that mm -hmm. in our beauty standards. And I think it's really important to remember that because this is going to be here throughout this entire discussion. And it's a good way to remind you that. And just a reminder of, of our history so that we don't forget that. It gets way too overlooked because it's deeply uncomfortable. A hundred percent. And this also coincides with the fat acceptance movement mm -hmm. or with the birth of the fat acceptance movement, which was actually created by a Jewish man named Steve Post. He grew up being picked on for being a bigger kid. And as he got older, sure, he lost weight, but he never stopped feeling the weight of being bullied for his size. He was a radio host and he spent literally as much time talking about fat acceptance as he did music. He actually organized this 
wonderful protest situation in Central Park and 500 people showed up and they called it a fadden, which oh, I yeah. think is so beautiful. Yeah. And it was literally about fat power. It was about taking back the power of this patriarchal, can't even begin, this white supremacist laden hell that was diet culture and yeah. fat phobia. You don't hear about that. You think no. of it as this being this new, new thing. If you were to like look at the academic literature, I guarantee there's written about in like the 60s, 70s, 80s. 100%. So now we're actually entering the 70s. And in the 70s, one diet in particular made waves, mm -hmm. which I'm sure all of you have heard of because who hasn't? It's the Atkins diet. So the Atkins diet was created by Robert Atkins, who graduated from Cornell Med School. And after his internship and residency, he opened a practice that specialized in cardiology. It wasn't going that well. So he got a little depressed and he started gaining weight and became really unhappy with his body. Mm -hmm. At some point, he comes across research by Al Pennington, who theorized that the perfect diet was one that was low in carbohydrates. So Atkins becomes obsessed with the idea, conflating that burning fat takes more calories, which means you must be expending more calories. So he created his own diet, which he then named after himself, because that's what men in history do. It's really like the thing, eh? Mm -hmm. The pouch <laughs> of Douglas. Yeah. Can't even. Any Hannah Gadsby fans out there will get that reference. Oh, it drives me crazy. But he then publishes the first Atkins diet book in 1972, which said that you could eat as much meat, cheese, eggs, and other high-fat foods as you wanted as long as you didn't eat any carbohydrates. There's nothing new under the sun. No, there's not. There really isn't. But in the 70s, that was considered a revolutionary idea, right? Even though, obviously, you know, if we look back at the history, we can see that the sort of like keto diet was created in what year? The keto diet was in the 1920s. There treat, we go. To treat epilepsy, yes, actually. And exactly. It, it, it did work with kids who had epilepsy. Yeah, it shows actually great benefit, but not for the average individual. This is how old the grift of doctors are for Honestly. diets, where they, he's a cardiologist and he knows more mm -hmm. than I will ever know about the heart. But I guarantee he didn't study much history of dieting and nutrition, mm -hmm. sport nutrition, etc. And he had that DR beside his name and sold a shit ton of books. He also, I'm pretty sure he died he, of a heart attack. That's what I thought, yeah, right? No, can't just rip as much sat, saturated <laughs> fat as you want with no consequences. Oh my God. Most people will have some impact of doing that. So to all of us, the thought of a keto diet or a carb-free diet is not new, but it was revolutionary in the 70s and his book was this instant hit. It sold millions of copies in its first year. It's re-revolutionary. William Banting started that shit in the 1860s. True. But then it became one of the best-selling fad diet books ever written. Yeah. Once the 80s hits, so does the beginning of another ideal body type. And there was one person in the 80s who really wanted to make diet culture more empowering for women because she herself was frustrated with how marginalizing it really did feel. That woman is Jane Fonda. She ends up getting an injury and post-injury she has to find a way to like get back into working out and she comes across a workout studio. She absolutely falls in love with this aerobic style fitness class situation and ends up opening a studio in Beverly Hills that became insanely popular. Due to its popularity, she ends up releasing a diet book basically which details her fitness program, her nutrition program, health and beauty tips and by 1982 it became a best 
bestseller being known as the exercise book for women. She tapped into a gold mine of female frustration because prior to her stepping onto the scene, there were very few resources for women who wanted to work out. Um, there had always been a stigma against women working out and there was no education. There was nothing that really showed women how to or what to do and what workouts should look like for a woman's body. Like none of it yeah. existed prior to Jane. Yeah. So revolutionary in one sense, but also perpetuated diet culture in another in her own unique way. And later in life admitted that she throughout that entire time and in well into old age, she struggled intensely with bulimia. Yeah. From my understanding, that exercise adoption was not for health reasons. It was no. for weight loss and like maintaining a thinner body. Yes. Yeah. The 80s was um, an interesting time. That's like leg warmers. People were ultra oh, thin. Yeah. That entire era is very much marked by thinness, mm-hmm. by Jane Fonda was revolutionary. Those aerobics workouts blew up. Every woman would be in their home with a workout video doing yeah. a step class with Jane Fonda and like little pink dumbbells. Who was the guy version of it? Oh, uh, Richard Simmons. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, but this segues into the 90s, my favorite, because this is when I grew up and the impact of this era still emanates through me today <laughs> on every level. The heroin chic era of the 90s. I hated it. Heroin chic is a look used to describe women who were dangerously underweight, almost emaciated look with like heavy bags under their eyes, kind of with like a bit of an androgynous look to them. It was genuinely to mimic the look of a heroin addict. That's so fucked up. It's dark. It's really, really dark. Honestly seen as one of the most dangerous trends in diet culture. Yeah. The term actually originates from a model named Gia Karanji, who herself was addicted to heroin in a big way. She really struggled. You know what's interesting about that? Yeah. We've talked about this before, you and I. Um, we've talked about it in particular in the realm of neurodivergence, where like, if you can't be exploited by something, the system will kind of be like, it's your fault, deal with it. Mm-hmm. And addicts historically have just been kind of stigmatized, like, oh, that's a moral failing on your part. You yeah. don't deserve help. You're leeching off the system. But oh, now it's beautiful. The Mm -hmm. effects of this addiction that's left you emaciated can now be exploited to sell magazines. Yes. Boom, let's give you some money and let's exploit. Let's not help you. Let's keep you in that cycle. Yes. I don't care that you're going to die from this. But for her to get healthy probably would have relied on a lot of fat gain to replenish her weight. Yeah. And they would have curtailed that and exploited her addiction to keep her meeting that unrealistic, emaciated ideal standard. Yeah. And because she was a fashion model, like the only point where people grew frustrated with her was when they couldn't cover up her track marks. Yeah. You're saying they couldn't even cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Photoshop wasn't in the 90s what it is today, right? So they didn't have the ability to quite cover all the track marks that were covering her arms. And after a point, after doing heroin for so many years, her arms were just overtaken by scars. It's just so strange to me because her body type took off. Like fashion designers went bananas for her look. And so many fashion houses started kind of catering fashion towards that body type. And slowly that body type became the number one thing that you would see on the runway at fashion shows. 
and it ran wild through the fashion industry. Yeah. This also coincides, ironically, with the cost of heroin decreasing and the popularity of its use increasing. Obviously, there's multi layers to the use, yes. but you're saying using it for dietary purposes. Using it um, for recreational purposes. It became like a drug in circulation that people would use either to party or to lose weight, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't. Um, but it was actually used to lose weight by some Yes, yeah. yes. Along with, you know, a myriad of other drugs. Cocaine was was used for that too, wasn't it? Some women used cocaine. Some models actually reported eating tissue paper to stave off their appetites. Oh. Of course, the cigarette diet was alive and well. Anorexia was at an all-time high. And many, many people had eating disorders in this era. This obviously coincides with Kate Moss. I think Kate Moss is one of the most iconic 90s models out there. Everyone remembers the Kate Moss vibe. I only um, know of her because of you. I know because she ruined my life, but <laughs> <laughs> she didn't ruin your life. The systems that exploited her ruined your life. For sure. But Kate and models like her who achieved that level of recognition and popularity were said to call themselves Gia's girls. That's that's bad. Yeah, because everybody started catering towards that rail thin. Yeah. Look, right. And this also coincides with magazines starting to publish articles and photos and all the things to push the new body type and standard, which was contributing to the new goal of being a size zero, oh, which yeah. was new. So since then, since the 90s, things have evolved quite a lot with the gasoline being poured on the fire of diet culture. And that gasoline is absolutely social media. I mean, from the time the internet became so popular that it was in everybody's homes until now, diet cultures evolved quite a lot. Yeah. Um, body shapes and sizes too. And like the popular what's in at the time has evolved a lot since then. Well, one thing I want to touch on there, because Sam mentioned social media. Yeah. And I think some people, it's really easy to shit on social media and I got my problems with it. But the consistent theme throughout all of this is media. Mm -hmm. Social media, the problems of it are the hyper accessibility and its ability to change trends rapidly. Yes. Where before it took a long time. It took magazine outlets collaborating with news outlets. For like, like a decade. It took a long time, right? Yeah. But now things can change like Overnight. that. Right. And it's it makes it definitely faster, high pace. You're getting exposed to way more images at your fingertips. But media influence has always been huge in driving these standards. Yeah. And I mean, growing up with the Internet, let's say in the 2000s, those were kind of the Tumblr days. And I, I'm sure many women listening to this will remember the Tumblr days where we would just scroll Tumblr and there would be image after image after image of perfect women, beautiful women. It was mm -hmm. kind of like a magazine feed but just photo after photo after photo there were pro anna tumblers there which is pro anorexic tumblers yeah yeah it was a dark time and that was a big outlet for us when we were young we were still into magazines when we were growing up there was a lot of cosmo and people and in touch and that kind of stuff and i remember so vividly the number of times and the influence that this media in particular had on us as kids seeing 
pictures of celebrities with their cellulite and going, oh, oh my, my God. God, she let herself go. Can you believe the cellulite this woman's showing on the beach? How dare she enter in public with all of that cellulite? The woman who sticks out to me the most mm-hmm. is fucking Kirstie, Kirstie Alley. Alley. Yeah. Like that poor woman. I don't know if she's a good person or not. I don't care. She was brutalized she by was, these magazines yeah. forever. And my mom bought these magazines. She said she liked doing the um, crossroads. Crosswords. Everyone says that. Yeah, no, she liked reading the magazine and getting the tea. Yeah. Um, and the fake ass tea because like we had the National... It's not even real tea. We had the National Enquirer. Ew. We had Star Magazine. Blech. Us Weekly. Like we huh. had all of it in my bathroom. It was awful and the indirect messaging as a kid and it's the same messaging repeated over and over again mm-hmm. Kirstie Alley let's use an example she she lost a lot of weight as she's losing weight she's just being celebrated she's portrayed as like having her shit together being a better person now and the subtext is she's losing weight she's now more valuable mm-hmm. and then when she would eventually rebound and gain the weight back the pictures they would choose were way less flattering oh, they, were horrible. they were intentionally picking pictures where she looked like a mess subtext would be she's getting fat she's now worth less she like herself go she let herself go yeah. those subtexts would always be present and it was positive celebrated subtext when there was weight loss yeah and it was negative punitive subtext when there was weight gain in those magazines they always included a sample of beyonce's 1200 calorie diet before she goes to the gala or yeah. things like that so i was always exposed to these images of beautiful women it everybody wanted to be victoria's secret model oh that was yeah. such a dark time we would watch the fashion show and and cry like I'm not even joking it's an empowering thing to watch right no these women are or they were at the time very very tiny and with perfect big boobs and like you know what I mean they had the perfect proportions like they were just these tiny women with big boobs so men love them and so did women women wanted to be them and men wanted to have them that was just such a major point of comparison for a lot of the women in my age demo and then social media became a thing and suddenly you have this little thing in your pocket like a tumblr feed but with the people you know and the people you look up to and the people you wish you were and the people you'll never be and you always have this point of comparison of beautiful people and beautiful poses with beautiful bodies with beautiful lighting and beautiful hair and makeup and beautiful photoshop and it has absolutely derailed the self-esteem of countless women worldwide because the pervasiveness the fellas too Sure. The pervasiveness of it going from tangible physical media, from, let's say, newspapers, magazines, eventually the internet, which was separated from us because you had to like dial up and break into it, like watch that video of the hamster dance. And that was it for a while. And then it grew to become something we could access just by reaching into our pockets. So I do think, again, gasoline on an already raging hellfire. It's always been a disaster, but the degree to which we have access to things that tell us we should hate ourselves. Wow. A hundred percent. And one thing I want to talk about there is I think left up to its own devices, the regression to the mean here would be worse outcomes. Because if you never questioned diet culture, if you never questioned the origin of beauty standards, Mm -hmm. if you never questioned your internal drive for thinness or to be smaller, you might just end up being on social media and the algorithms are going to feed you the content that's the most likely to get engaged with yeah videos images of the ideal perfect body just those images are going to be most engaging one thing you can do and this is the beauty of social media Mm -hmm. is and you couldn't do this before really 
you could curate your feed to have a lot of people who look like you. You could have people who have your background, larger people, people in bigger bodies. That's what you can see more of. And that mm-hmm. can be incredibly empowering. A hundred percent. Where and with old media, you can really do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to take a little bit of power back in that scenario. Mm-hmm. But we definitely want to get into the ways in which diet culture has impacted us. You want to go first? You want me to go first? I think you should go first. I think it's interesting to hear the perspective of a male on the topic because I feel like I mean there have definitely been more articles lately like a big one came out on the rise and prevalence of muscle dysmorphia for men and that was really interesting to read about because up until like quite recently eating disorders were seen as something that pertained to specifically white women yes which is intensely problematic on every level it is the erasure of women of color Mm -hmm. and it just discounts the vast number of people in society who have been impacted by all of this media by the stories of moral assignment based on the size of your body so it's always interesting to hear the male perspective it's not shared nearly as much as it should be because i know being in the fitness industry, the sheer number of men who struggle. And I'm so glad you brought that up because like there's a huge intersectional component to this. And that's why I thought that segment on the history of this was so important. Because as Sam said, people forever thought it was just white women who were suffering from this. I know. I read a lot of papers for this podcast and some of them were like, there is a myth in the literature that this only affects white women. And Sam's talked about this a lot. ADHD, they thought only affect little white boys. A hundred percent. And if you don't study people of different backgrounds or of different genders. How will you know? You won't know. So for me in particular, diet culture and like my body dissatisfaction and my own personal drive for thinness is since I was eight, seven. So I was a pretty thin kid until about going into grade three, which I think would have been nine. That summer, I was a really lonely kid. I was a really sad kid, but I wasn't aware of it. And I was very neglected. And one of the things that I used to cope with was food. So I gained about 20 to 30 pounds, I think, going into grade three that summer, which is a lot for a very small child's frame. Yeah. But this led to like a lot of body shame that I never realized was so problematic until I really analyzed this. So in particular, I gained a lot of chest fat. So I got bullied a lot for having man boobs. Now, I was a popular kid. So it wasn't like I got bullied relentlessly, but it was like the comments. I knew people were looking at me. I was so ashamed of my chest fat and my Mm -hmm. my quote unquote man boobs. This led to several things. Okay. First was I had a very small wardrobe, Mm -hmm. not because I didn't have clothes because I would only wear clothes that when I combined with a slouchy posture would hide my chest fat. Everyone who struggled with their weight knows this dark clothes, dark tints only baggy hiding my body as much as I could. And I did that for so long. And if I were to be in clothes, clothing that was uncomfortable, right? And I quote unquote felt fat. I would be so uncomfortable. Like, oh my God, I have to hide my body. Mm -hmm. I need to get home. And when I get home, I get back into my like loose fitted shirt. I talked about before with the consumption of those magazines, those played a huge role because I I looked at them all the time as a kid. I was just looking at them, getting that messaging. And then when I ended up losing weight in grade eight, the messaging that I saw in those magazines played out in real life. Mm -hmm. Because in the magazines was you lose weight, you're celebrated. I lost weight and I was unanimously celebrated. And I'm not throwing shade at the people in my life at the time. They were also so entrenched in diet culture. I don't think they realized what was going on. I think it's important to also note that based on the conversation Dylan and I have had, he was not really role modeled healthy behavior around food. His caretakers did not really focus on their nutrition in any meaningful way. They they didn't really eat. 
Yeah. So that was the role modeling that was like lubricating this entire situation. <laughs> 100%. So like I've said it before, I was raised by a TV. That was where I saw most of meals eaten was like I was at the TV, but you see family meals. And I just remember watching cartoons where it's always like a piece of meat with mashed potatoes and like greens. I thought it looked delicious. And I think I only thought that because there was a family eating together and there was a hot meal. That's it's so sad. really fucking sad. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I ended up losing like 60 pounds going into grade nine and I was unanimously celebrated, but I was really exhibiting some disordered behaviors. And the thing was, it was never questioned. It was only celebrated. Yeah. So losing that much weight that quickly is generally not safe. Especially um, not for a child a, of that age. A 13 year old. I was exercising up to four times per day that's... and i just remember everyone being like oh that's so great like and again i'm not trying to throw shade it's just like that was the culture yeah and i remember people seeing me and being like oh my god you look amazing and they had no malicious intent no but what does that message tell to a kid it's like oh now i'm i'm seen now i'm valued for this and i just i held on to that for well, so long yeah it became the cord that attached you to yeah. having a smaller body because your worth increased the smaller your body became. So then from there, I went into high school. I started lifting a lot of weights. I ended up gaining back all of the weight that I lost, but a lot of it was muscle and yeah. I got a lot taller too. So it was mixed in, but I gained a decent amount of fat back, but I struggled with my diet all throughout high school, yeah. going through phases. I struggled with it even to today. I've just always struggled with it, right? Yeah. Um, and diet culture has basically played a role in my life since grade three, 2003 until wow. now. And it wasn't until about two years ago that I really questioned it. And yeah. I still fight I still fight with the urge. I've read the literature. I'm, more, I'm way more aware of it. I'm trying to work through it. But every time I feel really stressed, I reach for a diet, like to gain back self-control. It's the first, oh, maybe I should just go on a diet. Yeah. It'll solve my problems and it never does. And that's a thing that I'm still working on. But all the knowledge in the world doesn't get rid of that urge. So that's kind of my history with it. What about you, Sammy B? Oh God, mine is really weird yeah. and confusing because truthfully... It's a, it's a hard thing to talk about because there is an intersection of my umbrella neurodivergence. Yeah. <laughs> that does come into play. Okay, so I'm a transracial adopted child, which means that I grew up in a community full of people who did not really look like me. Not at all. Whose bodies did not really look like mine. And that includes my own family. My family is of a different origin than I am. I'm a little bit more of that like- Mediterranean. I, yeah, I'm a of that Turkish, like- Turkish, Italian, Greek. Curvy Mediterranean style body, but- <laughs> What might be confusing is like Sam's quite small now. Yes. She was in a much larger body growing up. Yeah, I mean, I was not a small kid in that way. Like when I got, I don't know, maybe I was like seven or eight. That seems to be like the magic number for you and I. Um, but that's when my body slowly started to change and I started to get as my mother would lovingly refer to as pudgy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this also coincides with the fact that like, I grew up in a home where we talked about weight and size and bodies often because my father struggled with obesity. My mother has been on a diet since she was 25 years old and she's 75 now. Good she's 50 year shift. Oh yeah, she's been dieting for a large number. That's really sad. Yeah. And my grandmother was diabetic and because my dad was obese, he flirted with diabetes quite a often <laughs> like as his weight would increase he with diabetes. <laughs> yeah like he would flirt with diabetes he never had to be put on insulin but it was like you've made it here again earl and then he, he was, was just always pre-diabetic he was always pre-diabetic yeah, like yeah. it was all it was a constant struggle so weight and size were a common 
topic in my wow. home. And I also had a best friend growing up whose mother happened to be diabetic. And she was very conscientious about how much people were eating around her. Like she was obsessed with her food intake, but also her children's food intake. And she was always subtly monitoring everybody's food. And I spent a lot of time in their family home. So the first time I ever thought, hey, maybe there's something wrong with my body was actually in that home. And the first time I ever learned what an eating disorder was, was also in that home because one of their children, who was actually a boy, he was a swimmer and he struggled with bulimia. And, you know, we would be sitting down to Shabbat dinner and he would get up from the table and run to the bathroom. And I remember the parents being like, shit, do we follow him? Do we not? I don't know what to do. This is so fucked up. Like no one knew what to do. It was the 90s and eating disorders were still like, oh my God, what is that? We have no idea. You'd have to be like impatient for someone yeah. to take it serious. Yeah. yeah, so they really didn't know what to do with him. But it was in that home that I first questioned, like, is there something wrong with my body? And then I think I was eight years old at the time. It was actually at a birthday party. We were all in bathing suits. They had a pool and I realized that my body looked different than everybody else's. And that kind of started this idea in my mind of, hey, I look different and this is one reason why. Because I didn't fit in very well, because I looked different, I came from a different family, there were so many intersecting things there. It was one very obvious thing that made me stand out as different, and yeah. so it became the easiest thing to dislike about myself. This also, I say that this coincides with neurodivergence because I also, I have a thing called ARFID, which actually stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So since I was a small child, um, and I mean like very small. I don't have a memory of eating where it wasn't a problem due to sort of my sensory issues and different things like that. I am a very picky eater and not picky because I don't like the way it tastes, but I don't like the way it feels or I don't like the way it's present. Like there's so many little things. And as a child, I was just very, very particular with what I ate. And because I was so particular with what I ate as a kid, it meant that my food choices were seriously limited. So I actually ended up creating kind of like a really bad relationship with food because when I found something that I could eat, I didn't really care to sort of consume the things that I was being told I had to. I've been living with Sam for three years almost. I can attest to the fact Sam can eat the same thing every day. And I mean, and some people say oh, I could eat the same thing. No, no, no. On a Friday, on a Saturday, on vacation. I don't care. We could be in Cancun. I don't care. We could be in Jamaica. We could be in <laughs> Indonesia. She'd be like, uh, can I have some Greek yogurt with berries and maple yeah. syrup? Like that would be her ideal I'd be lunch. Fine. Where I'm like, I can eat the same thing every day, Monday to Friday. And then Saturday, let's have some I fun. need variety. No, 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 no. Yeah. Sam could literally eat the same two meals every day for the rest of her life. I'm not attached to food the way that a typical person is attached to food perhaps and that is again a result of neurodivergence okay so this does have to do with autism spectrum disorder and that's a very common thing that's also why a lot of people in inpatient eating disorder clinics for anorexia in particular also happen to be autistic because of ARFID largely and also due to the prevalence of needing to camouflage and fit into the culture and one really easy way to fit into the culture is to blend in by being smaller. Yeah, Sam was talking about that like with women with autism and this touches on part of our topic before. We talked about women with ADHD not being diagnosed and women with autism largely were left out of research because it thought it was thought to be like just with little white boys like yes. kind of the idea of Rain Man. 
right? Yes. And because of that, like if you're undiagnosed, like with having ARFID and those impacts being related to having me at a high risk of eating disorders yeah. for that reason, like these things all tie in, right? Yes. Again, gasoline on a fire, mm-hmm. right? Because you have this desperate urge to fit in. Yeah, masking is a big thing, right? Yeah. And then you also are restricted in the food choices that you feel comfortable consuming yeah. and not from like a psychological perspective. It's actually from a sensory perspective. So basically, I ended up eating a lot of food that just wasn't really great for you like I choose to eat a bag of Miss Vicky's as a meal because you didn't like you didn't like the meals that I didn't like food yeah. I really didn't I have a very strange relationship with food right and for any POCs out there this is like a commonly held joke but white dinner is really not the best <laughs> um and there were a lot of white dinners in my house like yeah. you know a piece of boiled chicken with salt and pepper on it I wasn't going to eat that I would mm-hmm. rather take a jar of Nutella upstairs yeah. and eat the whole jar and so I did end up gaining quite a bit of weight and that made me stand out more mm-hmm. frankly I went through puberty a lot earlier than my friends yeah. I had the boobs and the hips and the curves and I was bigger and I looked different by way of my skin tone and background and ethnicity and it just made me stand out and get too much attention for yeah. all the things I didn't want attention for so this kind of also coincides with the 90s and the heroin chic era and the Kate Moss vibe because the clothes that were in trend at that time were the really low rise jeans and I remember going into Abercrombie with my mother and trying them on and I remember putting them on my body and being like oh my god I'm so excited I'm finally gonna like fit into a fashion trend and then when I looked in the mirror and I saw how they fit my bigger body I don't personally feel comfortable in that style I don't like the low-rise jeans on me I never have it just I felt like they cut me off in a really weird spot it didn't look the way that it looked on Kate Moss who was real thin and I remember instantly hating my body because of it because I couldn't fit into the fashion that made people popular this is the gatekeeping of the beauty standards where fat white people didn't fit into it people of different ethnicities that might have different body types wouldn't fit into it so it's kind of that indirect the culture said basically you're not beautiful to yes. a lot of like people of color in particular or larger body folks but the clothes also said oh you don't belong here Mm-hmm. Right? I know. Which is so fat phobic. Like, it was. It was internalized fat phobia on every time. level. It yeah. was horrible. But it was like, I didn't want the attention that came from being perfect in a way. Like, I. I don't think that my drive to thin was as much about gaining attention as much as it was about blending in. Yeah. It was more about disappearing into the background. It was more about almost being invisible in a weird way. I honestly hated the male gaze. I hated the male attention that I got for having a curvaceous body. True. And I received a lot of male attention because of it. And I felt like I had been overly sexualized even when I was very young because I, again, went through puberty early and I had big boobs. Between ARFID... And wanting to kind of be invisible. Yeah. It just propelled this desire to lose weight. And I remember hearing things like nothing tastes as good as being skinny feels. Oh, the worst. Being smaller will solve your problems. Yeah. Basically. And so I just wanted to be more acceptable. I wanted to be more androgynous in the process. And part of that 90s heroin chic vibe was androgyny. Yeah. Because you become shapeless. Um, A lot of people muse that there's an adjacency to being a young girl. Right? There is a big... Yeah, it's really gross. Yeah. 
there's like a virginal component to it where the closer the more closely you resemble a young prepubescent woman so i don't know it kind of like pushed me into this place where i started to control my food intake where i started to get smaller and smaller and smaller and just wither away kind of because it felt safer to be in a smaller body in between those years there was like the victoria's secret vibe that i always aspired to be and never could like i'm not six feet tall i can never i kept comparing myself to six foot tall women models whose full-time job is to be beautiful and i was just a five foot tall kid like it absolutely damaged my self-worth in a way I never honestly thought possible. And then that kind of brings us up to speed to today where like the body type that was most popular within the past, I guess, five, 10 years has been the Kardashians. They have had a phenomenal impact on the way we view bodies and on what we see as beautiful. And they kind of created this. I used to watch Keeping Up With The Kardashians. I know intimately how much these women have all struggled with their weight Mm -hmm. for a phenomenal number of years. And I've seen them go on every diet. I've seen them try every calorie counting, whittle yourself down into nothing sort of style diet, exercise program, you name it, they've done it. And they couldn't achieve what they wanted to be teeny tiny and thin, but they couldn't achieve it. And then finally they started sort of (laughs) appropriating black culture, Mm -hmm. frankly, by appropriating black bodies and picking and choosing the parts of black bodies that they wanted to surgically adhere to their own to make themselves look a certain way which resulted in the slim thick era yeah which i've hated and loved because the slim thick era gave women a bit more confidence in having curves Mm -hmm. that was great women were sort of finally celebrating not being real thin they were celebrating being more curvaceous and like the deliciousness of a curvy woman's body having boobs having a bum the issue is it also came in tandem with this teeny 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 tiny real thin waist yeah which is impossible so then waist trainers became a thing and then hip dips became a problem and then there was brazilian butt lifts became insanely popular and then filler to fill in your hip dips became popular yeah and people slowly started realizing that the only way to acquire this slim thick look that the kardashians were all rocking was by going to a cosmetic surgeon yeah because diet and fitness and waist trainers just weren't cutting it there's a awesome YouTube essayist. I think she's like a PhD in social. Khadija Mbo. She did a whole video on the slim thick era and she talked about this where in the appropriation of black bodies that you had mentioned, there was like the bigger hips, the big butts, that kind of oh, curvy the look. the big lips too. Yeah, exactly. Again. And then what Khadija was mentioning was traditionally that also was expected to be accompanied with a little bit of a belly, right? Yes. Not having this tiny waist. And she mentioned the like problematic nature of getting rid of that 100%. but then keeping everything else. And it's like, this is now this very curated, edited, and unrealistic figure for most people. Even if you are some, there might be the odd person, like the 0.1% type person. There are people for sure. Just like for men, there are some men who have like that perfect, quote unquote, perfect V taper. It's not going to be the case for most folks. And if that's considered uh, the standard, like that can be really dangerous. And I mean, the death rate of a Brazilian butt lift is one in 3,000. That's high for cosmetic surgery. I mean, since the slim thick era, as it recently ended, 
the new Vogue body type again. Is it changing again? Uh-huh. Uh. Of course it is. Now all the Kardashians have dissolved their ass and hip filler. Oh, I remember you saying and that. And they are tiny. Oh, I saw they them. They're like blonde. Tiny they're like and blonde. And they're white all of a sudden, yeah, which is are, hilarious. They're Armenian, I'm pretty sure. They're Armenian, but they've always, or yeah. you know, for the past 10 years, they've been appropriating black culture in a really big Damn. way, including with their skin tone and including their hair. Like Kim has sported cornrows, so has Chloe. Damn. And now all of a sudden, they're white and they're blonde and they're skinny and they're patriots. No. As you can see, based on this discussion, that over the last hundred years, body types change pretty much every decade. Yeah. They um, change, they seem to change faster now, too, they right? They do. But. The thing that has always held true is that white supremacist ideal of Eurocentric beauty, true. which is adjacency to thinness, whiteness, blonde, blue-eyed, virginal, submissive, dainty, fragile, soft-spoken, the ideal woman. Our mics are on stands, so unfortunately we can't drop our mics, but that was, that was a mic drop right but there. But it's absolutely true. The perfect woman is one who barely exists. And upholds these systems. So <sighs> this is a heavy topic. Yeah. And it was more political than we normally get, but because this topic is inherently political and has a very entrenched political history and we wanted to present it to you in the most accurate way possible so that you could critically think about it more and we're not saying never try to lose weight and it's inherently yeah. problematic but i think it's important to be armed with kind of the history and the like the meta of how this came to be because it is so pervasive yeah. and critically thinking about it and analyzing what your relationship is to diet culture yeah. and what your relationship is to thinness the drive for it the desire for it dieting etc is a really powerful tool for you to sit and think about especially if you find yourself as being someone who's been relentlessly trapped into our culture with Sam. Sam and I have talked about how we have been too. Absolutely. And you know, I coach lots of women who have all been impacted by diet culture. I have yet to meet one who hasn't been. Mm -hmm. And there's so many conversations that we could have about self-acceptance, about loving yourself wherever you are, you know, living life experiencing your body from the inside rather than observing it from the outside. But I do think one of the more compelling arguments in this entire discussion about loving yourself and accepting your body is in the vein of taking power back from an inherently abusive system mm -hmm. that has lorded that power over our heads. And like the number one thing we say to any one of our clients whenever they say, I think I want to go about losing weight, 
let's talk is usually you know that that's not going to fix xyz right yeah. like it's not going to solve your problems and it won't it didn't solve mine it didn't solve dylan's i don't know anybody whose issue with like their self-worth was actually solved by losing weight yeah it's more so again it's contingent on so many other things yeah we're annoying because like we're annoying. whenever a client asks i'm like okay what's your environment look like yeah what's your social support look like it's a bunch of questions they, they want to be told okay what's the perfect macros yeah. it's like no it's not what it's gonna be it's way bigger questions and yeah. it's about like lifestyle transformation it's about like assessing hey can we actually make this happen if yeah. it's not possible i don't know what another thousandth unsuccessful diet's gonna do for you it's not inherently amazing for business yeah but i've read enough weight loss maintenance research to be very cautious whenever yeah. someone wants to get into it so like we implore you to challenge your thought process when it comes to diet culture. We implore you to question whether or not you want to take your power back from a system that has taught you to hate yourself based on your size or to measure your self-worth based on your size mm -hmm. or how much you weigh. It's abusive. It's exhausting. It's so defeating. It's violent. Like, it it's is It's actually violent to your soul. And truthfully, you know, the intersection of this with racism, ableism, fat phobia, all of the things and in particular like white supremacy for racism white supremacy it's yeah. just i don't think we've ever said the term white supremacy on our podcast and we probably dropped it we're gonna times. get flagged I don't we're gonna get kicked off whatever you know what deal with it this is the <laughs> truth and this is a more honest representation of history and i mean the most exciting part about all of this is that we have a part two, which is... <laughs> so if you hated this, probably I'm don't so watch sorry. listen to the next one. I'm but, not sorry. Um, as I was saying, um, <laughs> part two is going to be all about the impact that diet culture has on us based on research, based on stories, based on the way that the past few years have played out. Because given COVID and the sheer amount of time that people have had to sit alone by themselves, the prevalence of eating disorders has actually risen. And has brought in in yeah. a way so we're excited to talk about the impact that it's had we're gonna break down a lot of the data it's gonna be more sciencey than this episode but it's gonna be a good one too so we're excited for that as well yeah so if you like this and i hope you did <laughs> <laughs> um please consider sharing it with a friend who you think has been either sucked into diet culture or who could use some love breaking free from its confines and beyond that if you are struggling with your health and fitness and it pertains to an area where we can help you with great we would love to but if you are struggling more in the sense of a disordered eating pattern or eating disorder please feel free shoot one of us a dm we would would be happy to give you some resources where you can start to reach out for some help that is beyond our scope of practice 100%. but we are more than happy to support you in getting you the help that honestly would benefit yeah i wish someone noticed some of my same. shit when i was a kid because like same i was exhibiting tons of disordered pa patterns same nobody cared lol <laughs> well thank you so much for listening we love and appreciate you cheers <laughs>